Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is J.F. Martel. In science fiction, when you want to press a sense of futurity on your reader, you give them a city, an expanse of skyscrapers draped in noir, a neon metropolis, a city planet. And yet, curiously, there's nothing modern about cities. Archaeologists continue to find runes suggesting cities or proto-cities of incredible antiquity. The Old Testament, of course, is replete with great cities scattered like beacons across the arid wastes. Jericho, the oldest still-inhabited city in the world, is more than 10,000 years old. It seems that humans started building cities as soon as the idea proved actionable. And I like to imagine our distant Paleolithic ancestors dreaming of city life long before the technology and know-how required to build them existed. Could it be that the city which in the current episode we describe as a machine for personal transformation, isn't a human invention at all, but an attempt on our part to give material form to something that has always existed in the imaginal world. The city is special because it renders contingent what hitherto felt necessary and immutable. The moment you step through the gates, your most cherished customs, beliefs, and values are suddenly confronted with a thousand alternatives brought there by others from distant parts who came here for the same reasons you did. Everything that seemed absolute betrays its relativity. If you're going to persist in your old ways in the city, you will need to decide to do it. You could just as easily leave it all behind and become someone new. This episode of Weird Studies, the second in our two-parter on historical scenes, arrives at the theme of the city by way of a specific urban world, Greenwich Village after the Second World War. Phil chose this scene, his own if there ever was one, as the place he would visit if he were offered a single return trip on a time machine. In lieu of time travel, he suggested we watch a film and read a book. The film was John Cassavetti's debut feature Shadows, released in its final form in 1959. The book was Anatole Broyard's unfinished memoir, Kafka Was the Rage, published in 1993. Here's how Broyard sets the stage for his reminiscences on page 8 of that marvelous little book. Quote, New York City had never been so attractive. The post-war years were like a great smile in its sullen history. The village was as close in 1946 as it could ever come to Paris in the 20s. Rents were cheap, restaurants were cheap, and it seemed to me that happiness might be cheaply had. The streets and bars were full of writers and painters and the kind of young men and women who liked to be around them. In Washington Square, would-be novelists and poets tossed a football near the fountain, and girls just out of Ivy League colleges looked at the landscape with art history in their eyes. People on the benches held books in their hands. Sounds like Phil's kind of place, doesn't it? It was a joy for me to accompany him there in the conversation you're about to hear. Before you do that, however... Allow me to invite you once again to join the Weird Studies Patreon, where the spirit of the beats lives on. 
If we've yet to follow the best minds of our generation into the gaping maw of Moloch, demon lord of advertising and publicity, it's only because enough of our listeners have decided to support our project. We're thankful to them all. If you'd like to do your part, please visit patreon.com weirdstudies to look at our tiers of support and choose the one that's right for you. Okay, with that bit of peddling over with, I present you episode 162, The Incarnation of Meaning. We hope you enjoy the show. Errata about last time. I made two mistakes last time. First is I, I actually told you you were quoting Hitler when you were actually quoting Napoleon. Uh, so, so you weren't quoting Hitler. Well, I mean, I quote Hitler so often yeah, and so I casually. Just assumed, I can see how you, yeah, I yeah. see how you would have made that mistake. So uh, Nation of Shopkeepers is Napoleon. I was 100% sure it was Hitler for some reason. And the other thing is I was referring to the Japanese concept of ukiyo, of like uh, the floating world. I think I called it the floating city. But I'm hoping yeah. to get back to that idea today, so I will just oh. I will just leave that there for now. I realized after you were talking about the floating city or floating world, yeah, that this is the matter of one of my favorite novels. Although it's a novel I haven't read since I was in my twenties, so maybe I would approach it differently now. But Katsuo Ishiguro's Artist of the Floating World, which is a magnificent book about guilt, especially an artist who lends his skills to the Japanese imperial war effort and is carrying this heavy weight of guilt around with him about having served war aims that he has come to see as wicked. Mm. And a lot of it is in the form of pre-war flashbacks to his life as this dissolute, decadent artist of the floating world in the years before the war. Marvelous book. I love Ishiguro's concept that this decadent artist ends up guilt-ridden because of his participation in essentially a form of kind of like imperialist fascism in Japan. Yeah. This is a common pitfall of decadence in their search for ever more tantalizing and uh, soul-awakening experiences will end up, you know, throwing their lot with the worst possible people. Yeah, true. We'll get to all that. I mean, if you take an ethic of transgression seriously. Well, yeah. Where does it end? Where does it end? Exactly. What I really love about that conceit is the way that it shows us the extent to which the type of extreme war cults you see in like Germany and Japan in the early 20th century can themselves be interpreted or analyzed as aesthetic movements, as themselves oh, participating in this ethos of decadence and as, as imaginal enterprises, as art projects. No, oh, yeah. Anyways, maybe we'll get there tonight, but we're not talking about that exactly. Tell us about what you picked for this episode. So this is my answer to the question that I posed to you. If you had a time machine, good for one return trip, you could choose one set of spatio-temporal coordinates to set your time machine to such that you would be able to go back to some epochal scene. And we spent a lot of time in our last episode talking about what scenes might mean. 
I was taking the concept of scene in a very straightforward way, thinking about historical moments where a certain concentration of artists is attained within a particular urban geography. And so the urban geography in question is Greenwich Village after World War II, and the scene is the nascent but not quite existent beat scene. And this is getting into my book, Dig, Sound and Music and Hip Culture. I spent years imaginally voyaging in the late 40s, 1950s. I loved the voluptuous experience as a graduate student when I started thinking about this stuff of decamping to the microform reader room where you could read old issues of like Partisan Review or The Village Voice or whatever, either on microfilm or in bound moldering paper copies. I would spend all day with my nose in these publications. I would spend all my time listening to the music that was coming out of that time. I remember this one day walking out of the uh, University of Minnesota Research Library, Wilson Library, out into the courtyard outside of it and being vaguely astonished that I was not in the 50s, right. not seeing men wearing those fedora hats that men were always obliged to wear, not seeing women dressed in the styles of the time, etc. Like somehow I had entered so deeply into the imaginal space of my intellectual topic that I had this uncanny feeling that if I pushed a little bit harder, if I read just a little bit more... You'd just be there. I would just be there. Yeah. And I talked a little bit about this last time, talking about the chapter I wrote about the Holmes Acetates, a collection of recordings that captures the beats, Ginsburg, Kerouac, Holmes himself, Seymour Wise, as young and mostly unpublished nobodies just a beat before their fame really hit. And I talked a little bit last time about the kind of time travel fantasies that that collection or collections of that kind can induce. And I suppose I'm indulging in that time travel fantasy today and hoping that by talking to you, JF, mm -hmm. somehow I'll finally do it. I'll finally conjure the scene into my mind with such vividness that I will actually pop through the veil and end up on the other side. You'll just disappear from yes. my screen. Boop. Oh, he's gone. And then I'll see you in some old photograph. Yes. <laughs> Wearing one of those hats. Yeah. Oh, it's really weird. I had this weird vision watching, because uh, we read Anatole Broyard's book, uh, Kafka Was the Rage, and watched John Cassavetes' uh, Shadows, his first feature film. And uh, there was a scene where there's a bookshelf in the background. And for a second, I thought I saw the spine of my book. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that would be a crazy surreal thing for, for as a story conceit, you know? Oh, that would be awesome. My suspicion is that Shadows is not the kind of film that you would normally enjoy. And I would say it's 50-50 whether you enjoyed it at all uh, now that I have forced you to watch it. Well, if it's any indication, I had seen it before. I just forgot ah. about it. Um, oh, okay. Or I was mixing it up with, I'd seen Shadows, but I thought Shadows was Faces, which is another film of oh, his. Oh, okay. And then right. I thought that 
Shadows was the one I hadn't seen. Having said that, I did enjoy it quite a bit. I, I love Cassavetes. I love his vision. I love what he's doing. It's not exactly the type of cinema that draws me in for several reasons. And it's they're very idiosyncratic reasons. I find that Cassavetes is very interested in people. And I like uh, films that are more interested in the wall paint. Yeah. I'm being hyperbolic, but what I'm trying to say is that I'm interested in the a kind of transhumanism in cinema. I don't want to call it that. That's the wrong term, but it's the word, term that comes to mind. A kind of like, uh, I love Bergman. Bergman's another filmmaker who really loves the human face, but yes. somehow deterritorializes the human face in ways that I find compelling. I find Cassavetes mm. to be very much a kind of um, documentarian of the human experience, which I think is great. I see him as aligned with Woody Allen, for example, other filmmakers who are extremely literary in their approach to cinema. I have no issue with that. I respect it. I admire it. It's just not the type of thing that I'll feel drawn to emotionally. It's not the type of thing that bites me, you know? Well, also, it's a very sloppy film. And oh, God, is it I've, ever. I've, and I've noticed <laughs> that you like films that have a certain technical polish. I do. I do. I watched Repo Man and I was like, we were going to do a show on it. I'm like, I can't do this. <laughs> yeah. But I find with Cassavetes, I forgive it because there's such grit in the way he makes a film that it wouldn't be the same if he didn't make it that way. I found Shadows to be particularly wonky technically speaking, but that's part of it. I'm less insistent on that than I used to be. I think I can appreciate that sort of thing more now than, you know, because I used to make shitty films. So when I watched <laughs> the movie, I wanted to look good the way I w would like my films to look. But uh, yeah, now that I don't have a dog in that race, so to speak, I'm able to enjoy that type of kind of slapdash aesthetic a little bit more. But I did love watching Shadows this time around, and it really moved me. So what about it moved you? Let's jump to the heart of the matter. What was the aspect of it that connected with you? Well, uh, let's situate it first. So Cassavetes made, I think he made two versions of the film. There was an initial yeah, version right. yeah, that was screened in 1957. He didn't like it or the audiences didn't like it. So he reshot it and re-released it in 1959. And that's the version that we get to see today. Although I've heard that they found an old print of the first one, which was pristine, yeah. but the Cassavetes estate tries to keep it out of circulation. Yes. They found it in the lost items office of a New York City subway station, which is the, mo <laughs> the most poetically apt place <laughs> exactly. to find a lost print of shadows. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so it takes place in the 50s in New York, and it's the story of a uh, family, essentially three siblings who are... Mixed race, right? Yeah. The oldest brother is named Hugh. Now, they're, all three of them in the movie are mixed race, but Hugh is the darkest. He's visibly African-American. He's a jazz singer who takes his art very seriously and finds himself having to accept degrading jobs like introducing a girly act, right. stuff like that. And so one thread of this story and it's not so much a story as it is just these three people's lives it's and a very that beat to style them. yeah uh, slice of life sort of thing right it's very very loose on the plot and so you know one one thread of it is Hugh's creative frustrations his relationship with his manager Rupert who's always trying to look on the bright side and trying to get him 
better gigs and often failing to get him better gigs. And Hugh is always agonized about his artistic mission and his whether he's prostituting his art, that sort of thing. His younger brother, Ben, Ben, right, is lighter skinned, kind of racially ambiguous, and is a jazz trumpet player, but we never see him. In fact, the guy who played him, Ben Carruthers, didn't know how to play the trumpet. So we never see him like doing music. It's just inferred. And the suggestion is that this guy, although he has sort of vague aspirations to artistry, he spends all of his time bumming around New York with a, a couple of friends trying to pick up girls and occasionally getting in fights. Yeah. And then the third sibling is Lelia, played by an actress named Lelia Goldoni, who wasn't black at all. She was of Sicilian ancestry, I think. But in the film, you kind of buy it. Yeah. She kind of works as, again, somebody who's racially ambiguous. And her story concerns particularly an unhappy affair of the heart. She goes to one of those tense, unintentionally hilarious literary parties of the <laughs> sort that are described everywhere in people's memoirs of the time. Mm -hmm. And she's bored and she has a kind of a boyfriend named David, who's a very serious literary type who keeps encouraging her to write and then criticizes her work, <laughs> pommeling her with merciless critique because it's important. Like the, the spirit of artistic self-seriousness hangs over many of the characters in this film. And that is absolutely of the true time. to the time. Yeah. 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 But anyway, she ditches David and takes up with this young guy named, I think, Anthony, who turns out to be a racist. She sleeps with him, and that is a disappointing experience. And then when he takes her home, he meets Hugh, and he has a negative reaction. He just gives the worst vibes. And Yeah, and it's really well done. It's not like yeah. he doesn't say it. You just see it in his face and... And how Hugh starts picking up on it instantly. There's an expression, actually, from old time days, like Lester Young, the tenor saxophonist in the Basie band, apparently was fond of this expression. I feel a draft. Right. You'd say, I feel a draft. In other words, I can tell that one or several of the people here present is a racist, and I am feeling the draft of their racial opinions. And so Hugh picks up on the draft mm -hmm. really quickly and kicks a kid out of the apartment. But anyway, so it's these three stories and they're not really stories in the sense of there being like a plot arc with a challenge that is there to be overcome in some final state that they arrive at. No, what happens is that they live a little bit of their lives for the camera. And then, you know, one of the most characteristic shots or shot types in this film is of people hurrying through the streets, down a street, across a street, going from building to the outside or vice versa. People are constantly moving. And the title, Shadows, I don't know why he called it Shadows, but to me, what he wants to show us is life as flickering shadows. Yeah. The literal flickering shadows that you see in a movie house, but, you know, film and the way it's filmed this is why I asked whether the technical lack of polish bothered you. Because I actually think that that lack of polish is putting in some kind of work here. I agree. Intentionally or not. 
that sketchy, unfinished, hurried, catch-as-catch-can filmmaking is catching something of the flickering vitality of these people. Okay, this is a, a weird way to put it. I remember years ago, I had set a mousetrap, and I always have like live mousetrap, the kind that doesn't kill the mouse. And so I had one of those have-a-heart traps that, you know, traps them in the little box, and then you have to take the box somewhere far away from your house, and you let the mouse go, where it is promptly eaten by an owl, probably, but at least you tried. And one morning I got up early, and I was meditating, and I heard a mouse get caught in this trap. And of course it started struggling and trying to find a way out. And this rattly little metal box started setting up a rattle. And I was just sort of sitting there being bothered by this noise. But then at a certain point it occurred to me, not as a thought, but as a sensory impression, that what I was sensing was this vibrating little bit of life, a tiny life, a mouse-sized life. But this little life, having been confined, was setting off vibrations. It was bouncing against the inside of this metal cage. And the sound of it was not just the sound of a mouse struggling in a trap. It was the sound of its life or a registration of its life. Nice. Yeah. The way, you know, tremors, seismic tremors can be registered in the moving needle of a seismograph this little flickering pulse of life. And it gave me much to meditate on because of course our lives are of the same kind, just of a different magnitude, bigger and slower lives. But nevertheless, if you could somehow visualize a human life as a little flickering, energetic pulsation, something vibrating. A little disturbance, yeah. Yeah, and it, it flickers for a while and then poof, it's gone. Yeah. Human life as this kind of flickering energetic pulse mm -hmm. that Cassavetes wanted to capture in this film and does. And that's moving to me, actually, because it's like, on the one hand, the reason I chose it, said I wanted us to watch it, is because it's a very vivid realization of that Greenwich Village intellectual scene late 40s, early 50s. But it also is a marvelous expression of the aesthetic of that scene, which is, which is, is, is a, a vision of the human as not a life, but living. Yeah, you get an analogous thing in, in jazz music, of course, which is about the moment, you know, the impermanence of of the moment, the improvisational aspect of jazz. And it's just put a camera in the streets of New York and you get the same impression, you know, the kind of like flickering billboards and the, the endless shops and one street after another. There's a kind of like uh, ephemeral or um, the sense of impermanence becomes so palpable in an urban environment like that. And I think he's telling us a story that echoes or reflects the architecture, the kind of cityscape, the music of the times. And, and it, again, this touches on this idea of the floating world, which is a Japanese yeah. concept, ukiyo. In the uh, 17th and 18th centuries in Japan, you have this wealthy merchant class that suddenly springs up. And it's, uh, of course, centered on the cities, Osaka, Kyoto, uh, Edo, which became Tokyo. And this merchant class becomes very wealthy. So suddenly you have people who can access a lot of the accoutrements of wealth without being of the nobility. 
So you have this new aesthetic movement that develops, much like it does a little later in Europe in the 19th century with decadence, which is you get a movement that's all about the pleasures and tribulations of city life. And they take the term ukiyo from Buddhist uh, doctrine, right? Where, where ukiyo, the floating world, is basically the world of desire, the world of samsara. Mm -hmm. We might even say the imaginal world, because desire and imagination are inseparable from one another. The world of, you know, you walk through a red light district and you are immersed in not only in the actual physical architecture of the red light district, but of all of its promises, right? All of its lures, the red light in red light district, that red light stands for the imaginal dimension of that, what's possible in that place that's not possible in the next neighborhood. So there's a, a sense in which cities awaken us to impermanence in a very strange way. Like you know, the old Hollywood story of the country girl who moves to the city and suddenly the things that seemed most stable and fixed to her, the values that seemed universal, the traditions that seemed immutable, suddenly show their contingency because they're set up against a million other alternatives, other ethnicities, other ways of living. And so there's a kind of relativizing power to an urban environment that destabilizes your private world and th and makes you into a kind of flickering shadow. And suddenly it's like, who yeah. will, you got to keep flickering or else what do you, you'll just disappear. Yeah. Um, you kind of have to make <laughs> yeah. yourself. I mean, um, Broyard touches on this in his book, Kafka was the Rage, which is the book we read for this episode. And I'll just, we can talk about the book itself later, but at one point he writes, this is on page 29 of Kafka was the Rage by Anatole Broyard. The first impulse of adolescence is to wish to be an orphan or an amnesiac. Nobody in the village, he's talking about Greenwich Village, nobody in the village had a family. We were all sprung from our own brows, spontaneously generated the way flies were once thought to have originated. I love that line because it's, yeah. it's you know, having been, I, I lived in Montreal in the aughts when the whole kind of mile end music scene was happening. So Arcade Fire, Wolf Parade, some of us might remember some of the bands. Uh, Arcade Fire is probably still pretty popular. Wolf Parade, what else? Uh, there was um, Patrick Watson, I remember. Godspeed, You Black Emperor. There was this whole vibrant indie music scene in Montreal at the time. The music scene was just a standard for this whole kind of aesthetic universe that you suddenly found yourself in if you move there. And I remember like hanging out with people in diners and coffee shops and no one seemed to have, everybody seemed to just be native to this place. And yet no yeah. one was. The people who were native to the Mile were the Orthodox Jews. You know, like yeah. we were floating we were in a floating world and it was always, I remember the feeling about, oh, did you know that so-and-so's dad does this down in Buffalo, New York? That's what he does for a living. It's like, oh, he has a dad? Shit. Like, I didn't think of yeah. people as coming from anywhere. They just had appeared there like like flies out of shit. You know, like they just like suddenly <laughs> materialize into being. And I was one of those. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And he really does capture this feeling, this transitory ontology, it seems, that imposes itself on those who decide to be part of a scene. And they yeah. become their new, it's like you have to create your own family. Interestingly, in this film, 
the three main characters are actually siblings. But the fact that they look so different that in 1959, someone watching this film would have gone like, well, they don't look like siblings. What's going on here? Uh, Again, Mm. they're blood relatives, but because of the way they look, they end up contributing to the sense of the floating world of this world where anything is possible and everything is kind of relativized or contingent. Well, in this respect, the Greenwich Village post-war scene is sort of the archetype of all similar kind of hip scenes that came after in the sense that they were stages for self-reinvention and the creation of new and elective forms of not just of society, but of being. It sets that in place and, and it does so at a particular historical moment that was ripe for that kind of thing, which is, you know, the end of World War II, demobilization. That's such a huge part of it. Yeah. 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 So, you know, Anatole Broyard himself, okay, a little biographical note about him and also why I wanted to do this book. This is one of my favorite books. To me, every sentence of it is poetry. Every sentence of it is beautiful, perfectly wrought. It's often very funny. His metaphors are on point. You can almost choose a paragraph at random and find something funny in it. Um, Let me just give you a couple of a couple of zingers just to, to illustrate what you were saying. On page yeah. eight, the sadness of the buildings, talking about the village, the sadness of the buildings was literature. I was 26 and sadness was a stimulant, even an aphrodisiac. Or just a little later, <laughs> was it like camping to live so close to dirt? He's talking about how filthy all the apartments were. After all, I argued, isn't art itself a kind of dirt? Like he's got all these wonderful <laughs> observations. And it's just, it's a beautifully written book. Yeah. And observations about being the kind of guy who's always got lots of observations. You yes. know, this is a, <laughs> this is a book recollected in tranquility. So it's a coming of age memoir that he never got to finish. He wrote it at the end of his life and he died of cancer r- around 1990 with this book unfinished. And he intended to finish the book by talking about, after all these chapters, recounting his misadventures and the hip intellectual scene in Greenwich Village, a lot of stuff about a love affair with a woman named Sherry Donati, who is widely assumed to be a pseudonym for Sherry Martinelli, a woman of the beat generation before people had even named it as such, and somebody who is particularly known to history for her relationship with Ezra Pound. But that's just conjecture. I mean, nobody really knows who Sherry Donati was in any event. A completely original person, somebody who seems to be turning her entire life into a kind of Dadaist artwork. Oh, yeah. Speaking of good lines, um, there's one here. The context isn't important. He goes, she did this in the middle of the night while I was asleep. It was like her to present herself as a dream. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, he describes her as a kind of, almost a kind of cubist figure at the beginning when he's describing her physically. And then she's just such a phantom in the story. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. In any event, so that's what the book is about. Old friends, old lovers, His experience as a freshly returned GI, deciding he's going to take a little bit of money he earned in the Japanese black market. He was in the 
post-war occupying force in Japan for a while before returning to the United States, earns a bunch of money, returns, buys a bookstore or buys enough books to stock a bookstore, which really goes nowhere. But that's kind of his entree into this kind of world of books, world of intellectual figures like Milton Klonsky, Delmore Schwartz, Meyer Shapiro, Eric Fromm. So there's a lot of descriptions of him as a floating young man, as a young man trying to reinvent himself in this world of self-reinvention. Yeah. At a particular moment in history where suddenly there's lots of people who are flooding into New York City and other urban metropolises to seek whatever's next. Is this great line. This is over on page 14. He's talking about the mood at the New School for Social Research, which is an educational institution, still exists, but it was the acme of hip intellectual life in the 40s and 50s. The university in exile, there were many German-Jewish professors, including Eric Fromm, who washed up in New York City because of the war, because of Hitler Germany, and many of them ended up teaching in the New School. Breuer writes, like the village itself, the new school was at its best in 1946. After a war, civilization feels like a luxury, and people went to the new school the way you go to a party, almost like going abroad. Education was chic and sexy in those days. It was not yet open to the public. And there you can hear a little trace of a, an old school Mandarin sort of elitism in Breuer's writing in his outlook that he was not ashamed of and that mar certainly marked his literary criticism. Broyard became a book review writer for the New York Times for like three decades or something. Now, there's a collection of his book reviews appropriately titled Aroused by Books. Broyard <laughs> being in his day quite a ladies' man, so it is said, and whose writing in this book certainly trembles with arousal. He thinks an awful lot about sex. And he writes about books in a way that is almost erotic. Agreed. Yeah. And much of this book really is about him losing himself in books, losing contact with reality, floating entirely too much. Mm -hmm. The original plan for this book was for it to finish with the episode of Broyard's father's death. And in a letter to an editor, Broyard wrote that he wanted the arc of this book to be one of finally coming down to earth. This is a little bit like what we have said about Heraclitus, that the fragments of Heraclitus feel like they need to be fragmentary. And we said this about Philip K. Dick's unwritten novel, The Owl in Daylight, which mm -hmm. was very fun to talk about, even though that novel doesn't exist. It's my favorite of his books. <laughs> Well, this book is sort of similar. It, I mean, it presents us with a torso, but at the same time, the fact that it never comes down to earth, that it ends on an irresolute note where he is thinking once again about sex, what it was like, that's the last chapter, is basically what it is like to be in 1946 and what sex means to you. And he's like, I have no way of telling you what sex meant to a person in 1946. We have no terms by which we can understand that. But he's going to try. And the way this chapter ends is in flight. I'm going to yeah. read the very last paragraph. I remember once I was walking in the street with my friend Milton Klonsky, and we were talking seriously, deeply, 
about books when we passed a wonderful-looking girl. She must have seen the admiration in my face because she smiled, a little conspiratorial smile. I broke off in the middle of a sentence and ran after her, which enraged Milton. I could never make him understand that. At the moment when she smiled, I saw her as the incarnation of meaning. And the book just ends. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Just ends that way. And it could be the last scene of a Cassavetes film, you know? Exactly. I was just going to say that. It ends the way the Cassavetes film ends. The way the Cassavetes film ends is that Ben, having gotten his ass kicked with his friends, trying to pick up girls and then outraging their boyfriends, he expresses dissatisfaction with their way of life. He's like, there's got to be more to life than this. Oh, well, I'll see you later. And he vanishes into the streets. We see him trailing off in the distance. Yeah. And again, it's a film that consists just of the traceries of trajectories. You know, they're sketched lines of human movement and it ends in a flight. Yeah. Right. The, yeah. the ending is just an image of flight arrested. And that's exactly how Kafka was the rage ends. And I love it because even though that's in the case of Kafka with the rage, not intentional, it captures something of that same vision of life that shadows does. That sense of human life is something fugitive and flickering, transitory, filmy, hardly even there, but flashing brilliantly out of the darkness before winking back out of existence again. It's just perfect. I think that this whole topic of scenes has given us a way into, I guess, a broader topic that I've been meaning to discuss with you for a long time, and that's the mystical nature of the city as a place. Mm, yeah. um, so we've talked about the Japanese idea of ukiyo, the floating world, which was an aesthetic movement that took root in cities. It could not have taken root in the rural areas of Japan. That would have been impossible. 
you have kind of intimations or suggestions of that sort of aesthetic in courtly culture, like going to Europe now and like courtly romance and stuff, wherever there are a lot of people and people come in and out, right? So I guess in a sense, you could say that a medieval court was like a tiny little city. You have people coming in and out. Nobody was born there. People are coming through and you kind of have to define yourself once you're there. Uh, you kind of have to find your place in the setting. I think that the city is the moment where an experience that was limited, that was available only to a small set of people in the pre-modern era becomes available to large numbers of people. Think about the way that terms like in French, like monsieur and madame, which means sire and my lady, mm -hmm. were terms of address that only certain people would benefit from before the French Revolution, let's say, suddenly everyone's calling each other that in the modern era. We all become knights and ladies, right? And that mm -hmm. has a lot to do with urbanization. And uh, the way that the urban environment short circuits a whole bunch of historical forces that at once bound people. There's nothing new in what I'm saying. This is kind of like almost a platitude. But what I love about this book and what I love about the Cassavetes film, and I mean, there are other books. I was just, yesterday I was just leafing through Naked Lunch, which is one of my favorite novels of all time. And there's some of that there too, is that if we want to weird the idea of the city, we can see it as an environment that gives you a kind of immediate access to the imaginal a kind of unbounded or less fettered access to the imaginal, less kind of burdened. And for that reason, the cities are very dangerous, very volatile. Things can go wrong very, very quickly. You know, the, the way the fights break out suddenly in yeah. the film. Uh, or, or there's this, this crazy scene in Broyard's book where he's, he goes to the uh, Spanish Harlem to this dance hall oh, and yeah. some guy tries to get in uh, without a ticket and draws a switchblade on the, uh, the doorman this rumor goes through the room that the doorman was killed. He wasn't. Uh, but then the whole crowd comes down on this guy, this interloper, and just like, they just trammel him to death. They just, yeah. just kill him. And then the police come and they're like, yeah, we're not going to lay any charges and leave. It's just this crazy, weird scene. And <laughs> Broyard is strangely, um, this is where his decadence shows, where he's fully approves of what happened there. Anyways, my point being that the city's a volatile well, environment. he treats it as an aesthetic event. He he does, which is you know, which is decadence. It's it's, it's not like he's not, yeah. it's not like he's at least the way he tells the story. Not like he joins in the beating. It's not no. like he's uh, like filled with bloodlust. He just appreciates it as this extraordinary aesthetic event. Yes, as if he were watching an avant-garde play or something. Yeah, and which, that's which he some was decadent not. Shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so there's that aspect of the city is that it uproots people. It throws them into a kind of like cultural vacuum where they ha suddenly have to assert their culture in order for it to exist. So you have ethnicities keeping together in order to preserve something that is now uprooted, but they're going to recreate it here. You have people trying to break away from their ethnic, religious, you know, cultural bonds in order to define themselves in this completely new way. And also the whole aesthetics of the city, the billboards, the signage, everything is speaking to us at the level of dream and desire, right? The floating world is simply the imaginal layer of life, which becomes materially accessible to us in the city. There were attempts 
at trying to bottle that and control it for progressive ends. For example, at the Chicago World's Fair, 1893, the whole idea of the white city, right? How do we turn this, this grimy industrial environment, i.e. the modern industrial city, into a kind of new ethos, the home of the new man, where people can mm. come from around the world and reinvent themselves, but always in the image of this new progressive human and the city should be designed so as to encourage this type of uprooting and transcendence, this transfiguration to use Broyard's term. And, mm. and of course those attempts failed. The city always goes back to what it was. Maybe today we're more at risk of actually bottling and subverting this weird, uh, dangerous potential of the city. But the, my point is that yeah, I find that it's in the scene. Like it was when I was in the Mile End in the early aughts in Montreal that I really felt like I was touching what it was to be in Montreal, what the city was about, what the city was trying to turn us into. And I'm sure the Greenwich Village is an even more intense and energized version of this. Maybe there's a certain sense in which all these urban scenes are actually just neighborhoods in some other imaginal city. Like there's an imaginal city somewhere which is constituted by those neighborhoods in Paris, Montmartre or whatever, those neighborhoods in Paris where the intellectuals went. And then the next neighborhood is like Greenwich Village and the next neighborhood is the Mile End in Montreal. There's a way in which all these scenes participate in this transhistorical or transtemporal kind of form of the city or something. I've got a couple of thoughts pivoting off of that. One, this idea of the city as a machine for the formation of its inhabitants. I mean, calling it a machine is already maybe to weight the discussion in a certain direction. I think that the way we've been talking about cities is a little bit as a kind of almost like a cybernetic assemblage of both material and immaterial things. Yes. And so, you know, if you think about the very basic sociological idea of a scene that I mentioned in the introduction of our last show, where you say a scene is a site, an urban geography of consumption and leisure. So a scene is an urban environment that has bike paths and coffee shops and neighborhood movie theaters and so on. All of those cool things that make a neighborhood attractive to the so-called creative classes, the kind of thing that makes a city appealing. And next thing you know, a bunch of Californians move there and the rents are too high and the place isn't cool anymore. That's what happened to Austin, Texas. But whatever. <laughs> that idea of an assemblage of material affordances that shape human behavior. Okay, that's a kind of a, a materialist understanding. But, you know, we can weird that a little bit by saying, like, it's not just material affordances, bike paths, coffee shops, etc., but immaterial ones or imaginal once, perhaps some kind, uh, you know, we were talking last time, I think about like a broadcast signal, um, using a metaphor of broadcast signal, that there's some signal that people pick up in these locales. And perhaps that kind of signal, not a literal signal, but like some idea, some emanation of the imaginal will take root in a city. In fact, possibly it is that signal that arranges the physical 
objects within and affordances within the neighborhood in a certain way as to turn it into again, an overly mechanistic word, but like the, a machine for the making of a certain kind of person. But then those people, which include not just idlers and loungers, but also artists or people who are idlers and loungers who are also artists, but it'll create people who will create a certain kind of art. And that art will feed into the imaginal slash material assemblage of the scene and further turn it into whatever it is. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I love that idea. So you're, it's an inversion of how we would usually construe it, which is the material comes first and then the imaginal floats on top. Or, But here right. the imaginal determines the material form that is to come, which is a very platonic yeah. way of looking at it. But I, I think there's something to that. I mean... I remember Connor Habib mentioned when we did our episode with him on uh, the Hellbound Heart and Hellraiser, those two Clive Barker works. Uh, he, I remember him expressing bemusement at the first Cenobite we see, the first of these ultra terrestrial S and M lords, you know, who are who right. who rule over a world called the Schism. So this guy calls the Cenobites into our world, and the first thing the Cenobite asks is what city is this mm. and connor was like i wonder what wow, such a such a strange thing like what city why not what country why not what you know yeah it's the city that matters to the cenobite because the mm. city is the portal to their world right mm. um there's a a role-playing game that came out in the 90s a swedish role-playing game called cult with a k it was really really controversial when it came out it's a Gnostic role-playing game. But one of the features of the setting is this city called Metropolis, which is not in our world, but every city in our world contains portals to it. It is the extra-dimensional city that has served as a model for all of our cities, going all the way back to like Jericho and Babylon. Like every human city, every material attempt to build a city has been an attempt mm. to try to bring Metropolis, this thing oh, that we just happen to call a city, but this thing is its own thing, into our world. And so every city evokes, and there's a sense in which you land and you go to some foreign city, there's something that cities have in common, of course, you know, big buildings, streets, busyness, people walking around. But there's a kind of energy that I think is universal to the cities of the world. And you know, to someone who's a devotee of the cult, role-playing game, they might say, well, yes, because every city is a pale shadow of Metropolis, which is the realm of the Archons. It's interesting. There's a book called Secret Machines, Gods, Man, and War, which is by Tom DeLonge, the frontman of Blink-182 turned UFO disclosure advocate. Yeah. And Peter Lavenda, who's probably known to many people who listen to our show, he's written a lot of alternate history, conspiracy history. So in this book, Secret Machines, Gods, Man, and War, they use the figure of the cargo cult to talk about UFOs. So basically the theory is that all human religions are basically like cargo cult religions. So a cargo cult, as I understand it, I have a rather imprecise memory of what a cargo cult is, but my understanding is that there are some isolated peoples in the South Pacific Islanders, people who live in small island communities, very removed from modern life. And in World War II, there was a lot of traffic because, of course, it was World War II. It was a theater of war. 
and there were plane crashes and cargo like uh boxes of things would wash up and the inhabitants of these islands believed that these planes were gods or at least emissaries of the gods and that they were promising cargo that the various objects or even pictures of objects that they found washing up were cargo that was sort of promised them that there was almost like a religious covenant and they would set up their versions of TVs. They would build TVs or airplanes and effigies of TVs and airplanes and similar things as a kind of sympathetic magic to call forth the gods to come and bring cargo. And Lavenda and DeLong's argument is that human religions are all basically cargo cults. That in this metaphor, the UFOs are like World War II airplanes. UFOs penetrate our world. They leave traces of themselves. They leave puzzlement in their wake. But what they've left behind in previous ages were largely self-serving stories of gods featuring themselves, the pilots of these UFOs, these ultra-terrestrial or extraterrestrial beings, and that our notion of gods is basically just a, a crude attempt to manufacture a god in the image of these originating, you know what I'm saying? To take the few fragments or, you know, the flotsam and jetsam that washes up those little pieces of traces they've left and build something out of it. And so we're building these crude representations of this thing we can't fully see. So, Well, the picture that emerges from cult or your description of it is the idea that cities basically are cargo cult artifacts. Exactly. Exactly. That we have somehow in some level seated within us an image of the primordial city and all of our actual cities are crude attempts at replicating that. Well, it's, it's, it is amazing the degree to which the city, which you might argue is just the rational outcome of a bunch of rational activities, you know, ends up adopting a structure that is not that far off from, you know, classic depictions or architectures of the human psyche. Under the city, you have tunnels. Then at the mm. top, in the, in the top of the skyscrapers, you have, you know, the wealthy, you know, like this whole yes. of the cyberpunk That's city, right. which is not completely unrealistic. I mean, cities tend to adopt this structure. It has verticality, whereas most human settlements in history have not had much verticality. Even when you study like ancient Babylon, the thing that struck people were the tall towers and the hanging gardens, right? The fact that mm. it had this vertical dimension. So there's something mm. about the city itself. I mean, there are perfectly rational reasons to build towers, material reasons, defense reasons of defensibility, of visibility, of being able to see afar. There are all kinds of good reasons. But at the same time, it just so happens that all these good reasons to build towers ends up giving us structures that find a perfect reflection in our myths, in our cosmology. And so in a sense, it's like the material and the imaginal always working together to generate these archetypal forms. You could say that by definition, not just the city, but capitalism itself or industrial society itself is a kind of cargo cult, kind of attempt at, mm. at giving us in this world an image of some other world. I don't know if I take it in the, in the UFO direction as DeLong does and Lavenda, but I know that they're conception of the phenomenon is 
very interesting and quite nuanced. So mm. I haven't read the book though. Yes, yeah, definitely worth reading. It's very interesting. Well, if we're thinking about these cities that we build as being, to some extent, they end up being kind of machines for the formation of a certain kind of person. It's like we build these things and then we build more or less accidentally a machine that will do something to us when we enter it. We go into this machine and what does it do to us? Well, what Kafka with the rage shows us is a machine for the erasing of identity. Yeah. You walk in and you lose your associations or your old associations become much more tenuous. You know, Broyard talks about going back to Brooklyn where his family was and feeling since moving to Greenwich Village, like, you know, it felt like returning to a place he had left long before, a place that seems very distant to him, even though it isn't. He says that he, the idea of going back to Brooklyn felt like going back in time, like in one of those awful science fiction novels, you know, like <laughs> it was like you, once he was in Greenwich Village, he couldn't go back. Yeah. I can certainly, yes. I felt that way for a long time about coming back to Ottawa before I ended up coming back, but. Well, you know, the thing is, if I indulge in a little biography here, thing about Broyard, he himself is a particularly conspicuous example of this kind of, like, you go into the city to lose your old associations and you are expected to create new ones, to make a new self to fit into this city. He did that in a very direct way by changing his race. I didn't intend there to be a topical connection of this sort between Shadows and Kafka was the rage, but there is one, just as Shadows is about a uh, biracial family whose younger siblings can quote unquote pass for white, to use the expression of the time. They can circulate in white society without dealing with the kinds of overt racism that their older and darker brother Hugh does. He has no choice but to deal with them. That, of course, is one of the central things of Shadows, but this is also Broyard's own life. His family was a Creole family from New Orleans. By Louisiana law, they were considered black. Apparently, other members of his family were much darker skinned than himself, but he was quite, quite light skinned. And he decided to expunge his blackness from the public record. There's mm -hmm. a novel by Chandler Brossard, Who Walk in Darkness, which is arguably the earliest beat or hip novel or novel of the hip scene. That and John Clellan Holmes go, but Brossard's novel is of, I think, much higher literary quality. But Brossard was a member of the hip intellectual scene that included Broyard, as well as Milton Klonsky and Seymour Krim and a bunch of other guys who are known now largely to specialists, scholars of the era. But Brossard, I think the first paragraph of his novel, something to the effect of everybody said that Henry Porter was a Negro. Henry Porter is the name that Brossard gives Broyard in this Romana clay. Oh, okay. And Broyard threatened to sue Brossard if he didn't remove it. Whoa. Because he didn't want even his fictional doppelganger to be rumored to be black. Hmm. And 
Broyard's own family grew up with no idea that they had black relations. Broyard apparently kept a whole bunch of his family separate from other parts of his, like his wife and children, never got to know about whole parts of Broyard's family until after Broyard's death. And in fact, Bliss Broyard, Anatole Broyard's daughter, has written a memoir of her father and his attempts at redefining himself racially. So this is a kind of a remarkable thing about Broyard and the obvious explanation for why he would want to quote unquote pass as white is simply that he didn't want to have to deal with the burden of racism that he would have if he had identified himself with his black heritage. However, I think that Broyard also, both temperamentally, who he was on his own, but also belonged to a cohort for which self-reinvention was an absolute right. And, you know, Broyard is the sort of person who wanted to be defined entirely by his ideas. The idea of being defined by race, I think, was too biographical, too contingent, too much of an accident. Mm -hmm. In Kafka was the rage, the portrait of himself as a young man is as a young man threatening to lose all mass and substantiality entirely and just float off and completely into the floating world, completely taken over by literary imaginations. And this, to some extent, was his life, a life of literary self-reinvention, at least to the extent that I understand it. Yeah. And so there's this sort of like project of self-redefinition along racial lines that has entirely to do with a certain notion of the autonomy of the intellect and the autonomy of the imagination and a refusal to be tied down to one's biology or the facts of biography. And so Broyard is a particularly conspicuous example of somebody for whom the city exists as a machine to entirely remake the self. That's what he loved about the Greenwich Village scene, is that it offered that opportunity. It demanded that of everyone, right? Since yeah. it uprooted everybody. Yeah, from that point of view, Sherry Donati has a very particular role to play. I mean, for one thing, she's just an endlessly weird person. His portrait of her is so mysterious and strange. But quite apart from anything else, she is very perfection of this process of self-creation, of aesthetic self-reinvention. And it becomes like this huge problem for Broyard. In the what would have been the completed arc of the story, you know, he kind of loses himself with Sherry and then finds himself again dealing with the hard reality of his father's death. But as I say, he never got that far in drafting the manuscript, and so it ends on this kind of floating note. You can see the first stirrings of it in the chapter of his friend there who gets, uh, who is diagnosed with leukemia. You start to feel that he's starting to come down to earth towards the end of the thing, but it never actually happens. You're right. In chapter 10, there's a particularly, I don't know, vivid illustration of what it is to live with someone, to love someone or try to love someone 
who has taken it upon themselves to be the permanent revolution. <laughs> Somewhere, I'm not going to try and find the quote, he says that he and Sherry were like characters in a sad dystopic novel where sex has been subjected to revolutionary program. Right. <laughs> you know, it's just sort of like, you think about sex or you think about sleeping or eating or you know, using the toilet, you think about these things as things that you don't do with any particular style. Or put it this way, can you eat ironically? Well, in the Maya land when I lived there, you could. <laughs> the okay. Pops blue ribbon and all that stuff. Okay. Yeah. But but you kind of but you know what I mean? Like yeah. think about like moments that aren't ironic because they're not expressions of anything. It's just your life, yeah, right? Exactly. There needs to be that somewhere. There needs to be some dimension that is untouched by your affectation. There needs to exactly. be some base to build on. Yeah, something that's not amenable to stylization. Yeah, and that's what he reproaches himself with towards the end. Yeah. He wanted transfiguration, but he never gave himself enough, anything to start with, is what he says at the end of the book. Mm. Yeah, I was still looking for transfiguration, as I said to Dr. Schachtel. It was transfiguration or nothing. But transfiguration had to start somewhere, and I never gave it a chance. So, yeah, when even your your bowel movements are a matter of style. Well, then what are you? Anyways, your point. So it reaches a certain reductio ad absurdum when he wakes up in the middle of the night to hear a hissing sound and Sherry's no longer in the bed. And he realizes that she's sitting over by the stove with her head on the stovetop with all the gas jets fully opened. And that was the hissing sound. And so, you know, you walk into a room where somebody has done that and you think, oh my God, they're trying to kill themselves. And this is an, an, a suicide attempt would be, you would think, surely the most direct, unstylized expression of the most urgent inner human state, some kind of despair such that you would take your own life, right? And yet, even this presents itself to Broyard as nothing so much as a hermeneutic challenge. Yeah. That she's setting himself yet another interpretive challenge. She has found yet another aspect of life to stylize, to turn into something like modern art, such that you would need to have properly nuanced take on it like an intelligent, critical response. And so she sets up this whole tableau as a tableau to be interpreted. And Broyard writes about his just feeling of absolute, bafflement is hardly even the word, a feeling of reality itself dropping out from beneath his feet, the feeling that like nothing is solid. Everything is self-invention and that that becomes almost a kind of claustrophobic horror. So he writes, this is on page 66, all the gas jets were open. I could hear them hissing, or not exactly hissing, but whispering, emanating. My first thought, of course, was to turn them off, but I hesitated. She had taught me not to be so enthusiastic. To turn them off right away would be to miss the point. There had to be a point to what she was doing. 
the chair, the towel folded on the stove, the gas. They had to mean something. Of course, it was all like a dream. It had the odd, insistent details of a dream, and I needed to assure myself that I was awake. Then I looked at Sherry to see if she was all right, if she was breathing, but it was difficult to say. Everything about the scene was difficult. Her eyes were open and her expression was placid. You'd never have supposed the gas was streaming out a few inches from her face. In fact, she looked like the people in medieval paintings who held their heads on one side, impassive and abstracted. While it occurred to me that she might be in danger, I wouldn't have been surprised to learn that she could breathe gas. And so he continues, and I'm going to jump over a little bit. Standing in the doorway, leaning on the cold jam, I felt a sudden wash, or whoosh, of sadness, as if her love was a stove and she was letting all of our gas run out. She didn't care about the waste. It didn't touch her. The smell was very strong now, and I remembered that she loved to talk about death. She was always comparing things to it, saying this or that was like death. She had goose pimples on her skin, and when I looked at my own naked flesh, I saw that I had them too. Look, I said, we both have goose pimples. I wanted her to see that I was calm, that I could speak in a clear voice. Yet I felt lonely to the point of madness. Yeah. That's a, a me, and I mean, it's by no means unique. There's so many moments in the story where Sherry turns some aspect of life into part of that endless artistic project of the self that people are experimenting with in Greenwich Village in the late 40s. But this one strikes me as particularly poignant because it's a story about loneliness. Yeah. It's such a lonely, lonely story. Yeah, there's and, a... And, and so, yeah, the limits of self-creation or perhaps what it is to be thoroughly enmeshed in this machine for the making of new human subjectivities. Exactly. And the question is, is there an alternative? Is there a way out? Because it seems like even the attempts at countering this machine, it's almost like the damage is done. And so it's almost too late to go back. Like there's a kind of like, just like he can't go back to Brooklyn, you can't go back to the rootedness or whatever that you may once have had. There's a moment on page 80 where he writes, looking back at the late 1940s, it seems to me now that Americans were confronting their loneliness for the first time. Loneliness was like the morning after the war, like a great hangover. The war had broken the rhythm of American life. And when we tried to pick it up again, we couldn't find it. It wasn't there. It was as if a great bomb. As if a great bomb. Yeah, there was a great bomb, but he doesn't mention it. Uh, it was as if a great bomb, an explosion of consciousness, had gone off in American life, shattering everything. Before that, we had been too busy just getting along, too conventional to be lonely. The world had been smaller, and we had filled it. And so there's a sense here that the Greenwich Village scene, just to be more historically specific, as we've been talking about the city as an abstract thing, but that particular scene, that mm -hmm. moment, I mean, was completely determined by, you know, the preceding six years of war. And so the trauma of that war and the way that war itself is also a machine that destroys and subverts virtues, values, expectations, traditions, ways of being, and the way that it throws up everything up in the air is a big part of it. And if there's one affect that I got from reading this book, it's the utter loneliness, not only of Broyard, but of every character in it. Everyone seems to be super lonely. At one point, he's 
trying to imagine what it would have been like to be one of these German psychoanalysts who came to the U.S. as refugees and then immediately started practicing psychoanalysis there. And so the, all the America they see is just basically the dirty secrets and and neuroses and misdeeds of, of American yeah. people. That's what they get introduced to and how lonely they must have felt living that life. About the extremes to which one could take this aesthetic of self-reinvention. We just read that wonderful scene where Sherry either stages or at least, in, in, you know, it seems for Broyard that she was staging something. I don't know. I wasn't there, but um, stages this stylized suicide. I mean, this is very much at the center of the decadent aesthetic. If you think about Yukio Mishima, you know, we started this episode talking about Ishiguro's book, An Artist of the Floating World. With, there was an artist of the floating world, that's Yukio Mishima, who in 1970, in a protest against the rootlessness of Japanese people in the wake of the Second World War and, and in the wake of urbanization and of modernization, made this plea for people to return to the cult of the emperor, to Shinto and all that. And when he had finished, knowing full well that no one would listen to him, then proceeded to commit you know, uh, seppuku, which is, you know, ritual suicide. Ritual suicide. And so he disemboweled himself and then a friend of his decapitated him. This was a, a completely stylized, it was an aesthetic event from start to finish. This is the great danger of this machine that seeks to force us to reinvent ourselves is that in rendering contingent all that we thought we knew, all that we thought we believed in, the maws of nihilism open wide. You know, the threat of a complete abdication of value in itself becomes imminent. Uh, and so it's a dangerous game. You know, city life is dangerous. And yet the vision of city life in Kafka was the rage is so deliriously, deliciously irresistible. I mean, this book is a book that I fell into when I discovered it. I heard about Broyard because of an essay he published in 1948 in Partisan Review called Portrait of the Hipster. And I immediately could feel this affinity between him and myself, not least in that both of us, separated by decades, wanted to understand hipness as a sensibility or perhaps as an aesthetic. His brief eight-page essay was so full of the kinds of sharp-eyed and beautifully turned phrases that we find in Kafka was the Rage. I set about trying to find what else he may have written and discovered Kafka was the Rage. It's so, so compelling to me. The vision, not even of a life subjected to this kind of regime of self-reinvention, of aesthetic creation, but simply the idea that this is a world of books, of art, and that these fictions, these emanations of the imagination are so vividly real to the people living in that time. I just want to find the, the passage here. This is on page 29, actually the same page as the we were all sprung from our own brows line that you read earlier. I realize that people still read books now, and some people actually love them. But in 1946, in the village, our feelings about books 
I'm talking about my friends and myself, went beyond love. It was as if we didn't know where we ended and books began. Books were our weather, our environment, our clothing. We didn't simply read books, we became them. We took them into ourselves and made them into our histories. While it would be easy to say that we escaped into books, it might be truer to say that books escaped into us. Books were to us what drugs were to young men in the 60s. I relate to that. Not just books for me, but also films and pieces of music, art generally. But that sense of, you know, we're talking about how there's the, the whole decadent program is, it's not just doubled edged in the way it manifests in people's lives that, you know, decadents often live chaotic and damaged lives while seeming to also to have a lot of fun. This is kind of true of the beats generally. It's not just double-edged in that sense, but it's double-edged in the sense captured by the phrase, if this is wrong, I don't want to be right. Right. You know, that you are attracted to something that you know is bad for you. And yet, if this is bad for me, I don't want what's good for me. Yeah. The poison is the sweetest taste you'll ever savor. You know, the poison is taking you apart, but it's also giving you the life that you have. This is, of course, a relationship of people to highly addictive drugs. Heroin, for example, which was a scourge of the hip Greenwich Village world in the 1950s. But this idea of books as being like drugs, art as being like that, possessing precisely that double-edged quality, that if this is wrong, I don't want to be right quality. That's an idea that has largely gone out of our cultural lexicon, the idea that art in itself or the books in themselves possess that quality. But I think they do. And something I really love about this book is it brings you close to the heart of this kind of sick frenzy, a kind of feverish, not terribly healthy, overcooked, baroque kind of project of aesthetic self-reinvention. Brings you right to the heart of that. But it makes you realize how delicious that is, even as it tells you what the human cost of it is. It's my whole shit. Love that. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening. <laughs>